0: This episode of the Fastest Known Podcast is presented by Onyx Backcountry. We're here celebrating Great Outdoors Month with Onyx Backcountry and Leave No Trace. For the month of June, you can get a year of access to Onyx Backcountry's offline GPS mapping app, which is an essential tool for research and planning your next FKT. For just $10, they'll donate the net proceeds to Leave No Trace. Learn more at
1: onxmaps.com slash great outdoors. Thank you. Thank you everyone for joining the fastest known podcast every Friday, bringing you the real scoop from behind the scenes. This week is especially the case. We often talk with famous runners, of course, setting FKTs in various parts of the world. We're talking today with a very, very good runner who also lives in Southeast Utah, born and raised on the Navajo reservation. He works for a organization called Dine Bikea, which is supporting the Bears Ears National Monument. And he's an accomplished runner as well. Welcome, Angelo Baca. Thank you. Well, thank you for having me here today, Buzz. I appreciate it. And just to fill people in a little bit, you are in Washington, D.C. right now, finishing your Ph.D. dissertation. You are the Cultural Resources Coordinator for Dine Bikea, and we're going to give that website in the written show notes. And you are also the three-time National Junior College Athletic Association National Champion in cross-country and a 3,000-meter steeplechase and 5000 meters champion. So you're a serious runner. When we were setting up this conversation, we did it today because yesterday you were on your long run. So I think you have some interesting perspectives on recreation in the southwest part of this country, how our cultural heritage relates to that. Uh, This is going to be good, Angelo.
0: Yeah. Um, And before we get started, you know, it's kind of my cultural protocol as a Navajo or Diné to uh, do my clan introductions Uh, and my uh, introduction um, Will kind of cover like my mother's side and my father's side of my family. So I would say, Yat A, Angelo Baca, Yanishye. So hello, my name's Angelo. Uh, so my name is Angelo Baca, I'm Navajo and Hopi. Um, I'm from southeastern Utah in the Bears Ears area, and those are my father's, uh, my mother's, and my father's clans. And so I find it really uh, interesting as a historical tidbit, that those clans are actually in the Bears Ears region historically. So I actually am from there. I come from there on both sides of my family, um, even my uh, the side of my, my Hopi clans come from there
1: too. Wow, well, so uh, I would, I think if it's not abundantly apparent, you have extreme credibility for this conversation. So thank you very much. Bears Ears has become a symbol. It's in the national news, I think. And it's become a fight, which I think is unfortunate. Uh, We would hope that it could have happened differently. But as you know, years were spent with an intertribal coalition figuring out the boundaries, figuring out how to make it work. And then the uh, representative from Utah, quite possibly was stalling. You know, he actually didn't want this to happen. And so he sort of allowed this discussion to go on for years and years, and then it didn't go anywhere. And then in his last weeks of office, President Obama said, okay, wow, we've discussed this enough. I'm just going to declare this a national monument. And then of course, President Trump came in and he reversed a large part of it. And now President Biden is in and here we are. What's going to happen next? It's a really great question, and I
0: really love how you mentioned the person of whose name we shall not mention. <laughs> 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 a, he's just a speed bump on the road to history anyway. Um, so if you think about you know the the magnitude of this, the incredible efforts of all these tribes that have come together for the purpose of protecting ancestral sacred lands together. You know, these tribes used to be enemies historically. And so to set all that aside and leave that at the door while they're coming to make, you know, these kind of diplomatic overtures and working in solidarity so that they could be unified in one effort, in one goal of one mind to protect this place. That's an incredible achievement all by itself. You know, this country can take a cue from understanding that sort of dynamic in its divisiveness currently, you know, and just also thinking about the way that they were able to go across different cultures, different languages, different cultural protocols um, and respect, you know, this, the the magnificent respect that they were showing each other and having this vision for the future for uh, generations to come, especially as it regards our, our tribal communities, our youth, our elders, our medicine people. Um, and just thinking about these things in a real indigenous perspective, um, I think is an incredible achievement and it is still something that people the world over are very much interested in. So we're, we're kind of focusing on the wrong thing. You know, a lot of people are interested in that controversy or that battle or whatever it is. But, you know, we always say that Bears Ears is about healing because it has a lot of medicine, a lot of power in doing that um, for our community. And if you really think about it, it actually is a space for addressing historical trauma. This country doesn't really have a lot of opportunities in talking about the way that settler colonialism impacted indigenous communities, removed them, um, made war and brought disease and displaced them and, you know, all this terrible genocide and trauma. But if you think about a place like Bears Ears, it's an opportunity for everybody to address that and begin the process of healing. And I think that's really important. We we really actually need those spaces in our world
1: today. Wow. You just blew the conversation open. You broadened it up tremendously. So we're we're all runners. I think everyone listening to this basically is and we might go down there and Go for a run, right? Whee, that was fun. Go down to Needles District and run the joint trail. This is great. Climbers, of course, could go to Indian Creek, world-famous crack climbing area. Climb a 200-foot splitter and go, whee, that was fun. But what you just said is 100 times bigger than that. Right. A place for healing. You gave this example that there's this intertribal coalition that came together, Mm -hmm. and a few minutes ago, Pardon me before we started the recording, you noted that Bears Ears wasn't just supported by the indigenous people, it was promoted. It was like organized. This is different. This isn't the same thing. Exactly. So, on so, so many different levels, Bears Ears is a very meaningful place. Right. And I think that's
0: why I love talking to my running community. I love talking to the recreation outdoor folks. I love talking to People who just love nature and the outdoors. Uh, because in my mind, they're already the best advocates for places like this. They're already guardians, protectors, watchers. You know, they're, they are, in essence, managers that have tremendous amounts of power. And they, on some level, they already know this. Because when they think about public lands, you know, this idea of like public um, You know, it's only public because they were stolen indigenous lands in the first place. (laughs) But because you are a public lands, you know, participant and you're out there and you actually are a citizen of the country, you pay taxes, you have a bank account, you're able to have all of these resources, status, uh, different leverages that you can uh, utilize. you, You yourself have a lot of power. And so it's not just, you know, going for a run. Um, but it's it 's actually putting yourself onto the landscape, developing that relationship, understanding why it 's so special uh, to indigenous peoples and to everybody really, and that it 's part of our responsibility to be stewards, good stewards, and have that accountability um, and, and take care of it um, and leave it leave it better than you found it so I think that's why like for me, the greatest hope is in those folks who want to come to these these spots. And what we have to do is educate them. We've got to show them how to visit with respect and, you know, take care of these places because you've got to remember that you're a guest in these lands, you know. Um, indigenous folks uh, all over the country um, have been taking care of their places since time immemorial. And so it's up to us to do the same.
1: Well put. Well put. Wow. I'm, I'm. pardon me, but I'm tremendously enjoying this conversation. I'm learning a lot. I'm very stimulated by it. I just got back from spending a month in Moab, the month of May, and went down to Cedar Mesa and other places. And <clears throat> like, it's hard. I felt I had a reasonable degree of knowledge and background. And yet I am continually surprised by the, what's the word? words fall short the heritage that already existed there. Mm -hmm. Right. So I can come in, want to do a run, climb, bike ride. It's all great. But what went on there way before I showed up is it's hard. It's hard to articulate it. So I'm in Moab, which now is, you know, classic industrial tourism. It's, it's full on right now. And, and, you can walk one mile outside of the city limits and you can find 50 panels of rock art, for example, that are not identified in any map. I mean, it's, it's, it's literally that much everywhere. So the, the history here is, uh, I guess the word would be unfathomable.
0: Yeah. There, there's so much evidence of indigenous presence before, um, that I think, It kind of boggles the mind when people who come to visit the area are surprised that there's actually evidence of it still around, um, that we've been there in those spaces for a really, really long time as Indigenous peoples. And you can even see some of that rock art, too, in other places in Bears Ears of, you know, um, depictions of um, animals that may no longer even be in the area, or uh, different vestiges of time that indicates when others were coming in representing like, you know, different regions or technology or expressions of uh, visitors that were passing through. And I think it's it's fascinating because, you know, to me, there's always this short-sighted argument where folks who have recently come to these areas and made significant uh, changes and impacts to the land, like, oh, my you know, my family's fifth generation rancher, farmer, miner. It's like, you know, that's great, but you're, you're topsoil. We go,
1: <laughs> we go down to the bedrock, you know? That's a, that's a fun part. i part Pardon me. That's a good metaphor. Uh, that's topsoil.
0: <laughs> we go, we go all the way down to the bedrock. You know, you're like little on the top there, but for us, like, thousands and thousands of years you know yeah uh, it's a drop in the bucket compared to
1: that ocean well indeed a few weeks ago on our podcast we had miss heidi red the proprietor of dugout ranch there for 56 years and she's been very active trying to promote and encourage and support bears ears national monument she she told the story she's at this public meeting where a rancher got up and said, I've been here for five generations. And she just fell out of her chair. I mean, just laughing. I mean, of course she's there for 56 years, which to me is a really long time, but then to you and your relatives, that's topsoil.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And I think that's kind of why, you know, we have like this historical amnesia in this country and it's very difficult for us to sort of get out of our own, selfish comfort zones and understand that the world is much greater than us. And even when we're advocating for Bears Ears, it's not just about the land, right? Because a lot of people, they make it this discussion or this dialogical connection between just the people and the landscape. But the reality is, in the indigenous perspective, our own cultural beliefs, you know, we have connections to other living things as well. So it's the human and the non-human relationships and we call them relatives because they are part of our family in this existence that we all share. So essentially uh, it's difficult for maybe a Western mind, a conditioned colonial mind to think that way, uh, that, you know, these debates are only specific to human beings, but they're not, you know, they, they're also inclusive of our, of our other relatives, you know, the, the medicines, the plants, the trees, the rocks, the elements, you know, uh, spirits, you know, ancestors. Like th- these are all very much part and parcel of the landscape.
1: And to separate them would be to do it in an injustice. And that reminds me of, I think it was New Zealand, but I'm not sure, where they lobbied and gave personhood status to a river yeah and so here in the United States somehow this is a little creepy corporations <laughs> <laughs> this kind of shows the particular priorities we assign uh, corporations were giving personhood status, but uh, n- non-human objects of any kind were not. so again I might be mistaken but I think New Zealand passed a law saying this particular river, Had that status, and so you could advocate for its health and well-being on its own behalf. Correct. Yeah, I, I think
0: that's a really great um, opportunity for having those discussions and sort of doing a decolonial move uh, in these ideas of like you know uh, Western um, uh, white supremacy, essentially just kind of trying to take these ideas and then impose them on the landscape and the people. Um, and that's a way of taking it back. Um, and and I think that's why for us, like the monument proposal is such an interesting idea because essentially it's a living experiment, you know, it's being played out uh, in a way that nobody will actually know because we've never done it before. You know, we're sort of making this road by walking it and, um, essentially it's really going to be something that is going to get a lot of pushback. And so that's what we have to kind of pay attention to because we're seeing that now, Uh, obviously, you know, the last administration and uh, some of the folks in political power now are trying to limit the powers of the antiquities act. They're trying to limit um, the protection of public lands. Um, They're trying to keep to a minimum uh, the the parks, the monuments, um, anything that could be essentially um, given some protective status uh, because they're really looking at this model that they started to keep going, which is really an extractive model, doesn't do anything for restoration or reciprocity or respect for the land or the
1: people. Well, let's keep this – our listeners, of course, are like me and you, active recreationalists. Again, I was just out there. I was biking. I was running, hiking, scrambling, and paddling, actually, and loving the heck out of it. So, so just to be yeah. clear, this was terrific. I was just really enjoying this. And yet, having a conversation with you, the conversation I had with Heidi a couple of weeks ago, this deepens, doesn't detract, this deepens my enjoyment of my recreational activities. When you break down our English words, not a bad word, re create, recreate. This is pretty good. So I think we could take our Western heritage and kind of tune it up a little bit here (laughs) and look at the term recreate as being something that is a little broader, a little deeper, a little more holistic than just the time. And by the way, I do record everything on Strava, uh, complete disclaimer here, but there's more to it than that. And as you've noted, we can deepen our recreational experience by having a deeper understanding of the place.
0: Yeah. And I think that's why, um, for me, the land has given me many gifts among them, being able to run and train and be on these trails and mountains and canyons. And, you know, just giving me the strength and the endurance that I've needed to be, uh, strong mentally physically emotionally spiritually and you know i've always known how special bear's ears has been um especially growing up that you know it's been my kind of like uh, my place that i have always had my heart attached to is that region and uh it has given me a lot it's like helped me to be a student athlete you know i been an all-American. I've been a national champion. I've even gone on to uh, try my hand at running at the University of Washington at the Division One level. I tried for 2004 Olympic trials for the 10,000 with the Sports Warriors Track Club. Uh, a couple of us from that group actually made it, you know, in the 10,000 meters. Um, so yeah, I went. I got into grad school and I deferred for a whole year. My advisor was like, "Yeah, absolutely, do it. Take the opportunity." Which I was really surprised that he encouraged that. <laughs> Because I feel like a lot of educators don't have that mentality of like, these go hand in hand, you know, it's the discipline of the mind and the body, as much as it is the discipline of the intellectual and the spiritual. And so I feel like that is the ultimate connection in keeping ourselves balanced as complete and full human beings. Like, what good is it for you to be a champion runner if you're not the best person that you can be? Or what good is it for you to be like the most, uh, uh you know, accomplished and achieved runner if there is no other kind of meaning attached to it? So, you know, what, what I do is beyond recreation, you know, it's historic, it's cultural, it's ceremonial, it's, uh, you know, it's personal. And... Everywhere I go, everything I do, I got to represent myself and my clans. Like, I'm not just bringing myself. I'm actually bringing representation of, like, so many other family members. Uh, just by invoking that introduction, I literally bring them into the conversation, right? So I feel like it's a good um, expression of of who we are as human beings, that we can be Runners in a place and develop a relationship with that place. And, you know, that's the next step I think for quote-unquote Recreationists Um, I myself have a kind of a problem with that word because it's like what are we recreating like it's already there You're just you're a participant in that right? You're part of it There's nothing that makes you more humble than putting yourself out into the environment out into nature and then understanding that you have a place in it, but you are definitely not above it. You're just a part of it. And that's the philosophy that we have as indigenous peoples. And so that's what I'm interested in, is like sort of developing that relationship further and going one step beyond that, not just as runners, but as that we can be participants in the environment, be protectors, and that we can also um, have those connections to the indigenous peoples of these places how many times have we gone to races all across the country and we've never made connections with indigenous folks in those places? You know, I would really love to see that change um, because I do think that they were the first runners there. They made the first trails. A lot of those trails became highways, freeways, expressways. You know, it wasn't that the founders or the builders of these places were like, Ooh, we should put a, a road here. That road was already there. We made that road. That trail that we used to run on uh, is now made into a road. And so it's the same thing at Bears Ears, right? Like you have cliff dwellers. You got climbing spaces. You have all these pictographs, petroglyphs, rock art things on the wall. We put those there because we were the first climbers. And a lot of professional climbers get their minds blown because they're like, how did they get up here? How did they do this? You know, they're like, we, we have all this equipment. And uh, we're still trying to figure out how to, you know, uh, get into some of these areas. And that's, I think, really part of the conversation that people have not figured out yet is that we were advanced in so many ways. You know, it's just like thinking about those things, uh, the achievements physically, scientifically, historically, medically, astrologically, agriculturally, you know, like we... We were an advanced civilization and we still are and we're still there. So the next step, <laughs> the next step for folks is not just to run to these places, but go a bit further, deepen your relationship, your connection to the land and the people. And then it'll feel more natural. It'll feel more right. Like, oh, here's my part that I get to play in this grander narrative.
1: Angelo, Angelo, I'm, uh, I'm I'm speechless here. It's uh, it's, it's amazing, amazing. Um, I'm I'm just processing what you said. You said so many things. I'm still processing it. Um, I'm delighted by your perspective here. It's deepening my understanding, my appreciation, and my experience when I'm out there. Um, a couple, this, there's so many different ways to go in this conversation. And I think, because I think our listeners are really identifying with what you're saying. They felt this. I mean, most runners, um, there's a transcendent experience that's inherent in the sport, particularly when they're out in nature. So I think our listeners really appreciate what you're saying. And it's, it's adding to their understanding of what they've felt on some level all along. I would like to specifically drill into the, Remarkable Native American tradition of running. I mean, this again, this goes, I I don't know how long it goes back. Like, again, like everything else, you can't figure out how long it goes back. But of course, there's Jim Thorpe, but then there's Billy Mills at the 10,000 meters in Tokyo. And why don't you talk to us about this? Because I don't know the Eastern people that well. That's not really my area of knowledge or experience, but the Southwestern heritage i know is rich in a running tradition
0: right uh and i think um the southwestern uh tribal uh, emphasis on running has been i think uh, kind of just legendary everywhere uh you you know you can you can mention hopi or you can mention navajo and a lot of folks will be like, oh uh, you guys are you runners you know and like yeah yeah we we are um, and that that kind of reminded me recently, somebody was asking me about it, and um, I've been thinking about this in the last couple of my runs, which is, you know, the Pueblo Revolt of 1680 in the Southwest was such a remarkable achievement as well. Uh, when the Spanish had been so brutal and violent and oppressive um, that we couldn't, we couldn't any longer stand uh, their presence to be in our pueblos.
1: And so, um, but you communicate, you, you, I should say, the the indigenous people didn't use cell phones or text messages to communicate. Instead, they had runners, and they, every Pueblo overthrew the Spanish on the same day. That was, that's, this is, this is well done. Yeah. And I think that's why, um, you know, we
0: utilize running for essentially everything, um, because it is, It is ceremonial, it is recreational, but it's also, you know, it's part of warfare, protection, uh, strengthening, just giving yourself the opportunity to be mentally, physically, emotionally, and spiritually strong. And then the sending out of all of those runners to the different um, Pueblo villages, you know, all over like, you know, 19 plus, and then just having like a, a revolt planned on the same day, um, all over the region and kicking the Spanish out for 10 years is a large achievement because that was a world power, you know, and just to have all of those um, indigenous folks be unified and move as one, I think was a- an incredible um, accomplishment. And, you know, I feel like in a certain way, um, Bears Ears hearkens similarly to that same call of solidarity it's like we need all of our indigenous folks to help and support, to participate, to weigh in. And, you know, this is a peaceful endeavor. We're, we're trying to protect sacred land. We don't want anything bad to happen to it or to us. But we really do need um, to kind of work together and um, essentially make sure that people know about it so that it can be protected. Because that's the, that's the thing that I was thinking about the most about this whole Pueblo Revolt run was that, you know, they were messengers. They were taking messages on foot going across the deserts, uh, you know, we're talking hundreds of miles in elevation, rocky terrain, probably trying to outrun Spanish soldiers on horses with their steel and their armor. You know,
1: like, just
0: imagine the odds. uh,
1: And wait, don't forget the no water part. I mean, (laughs) the no water part is notable. The high
0: desert elevation of, like, you know, limited water access, for sure, is a challenge, right? Like, you just think about all these folks that are running, you know, 50, 100 milers for fun. Like, this is not for fun. This is for your life, you know? Imagine, I want to know what that fastest known time was. I bet it beat everybody, (laughs) you know. So that's that's like again, this it's how we think is like we we only think about what we know. We definitely don't know what we don't, but what we are very sure of is the fact that somebody else was there before you and did it before you did. So you can think fastest known time all that you want, but I almost guarantee you we had indigenous runners. That were just as good, if not better.
1: <laughs> I want to know what the fastest known time for that was. That's good. I like it. And again, no aid. No stations. aid stations. If
0: they even see you, you're done, because uh, you know <laughs> you have literally the entire uh, uh, the the other worlds coming for you. So it's like an alien is on your tail, and you have to lose them in the high desert. And I was thinking about the messaging part because that's what's so important is that, you know, traditionally, uh, a lot of runners were messengers. And this is true for all over the world, right? I'm thinking even about like uh, uh, Pheidippides and Marathon having the message delivered and then (laughs) mythically dying, right? Uh, The whole idea about it (laughs) is that sometimes even in enemy territory, your message is so important that they'll let you through. You know? Even even if they know like oh yeah, yeah, we're at war with you, but like but you're bringing some kind of important message. All right, all right, bring it through cuz it may concern us as well. And I feel like that is really kind of the message of bears ears right now is that it doesn't have to do with just us. It has to do with everyone. It has to do with all of our relatives, human and non-human, native and non-native you know, past, present, and future generations, people who aren't even here yet. We, we have to deliver them the message that you got to protect these places. That's how special they are.
1: Wow. That's th- what a brilliant uh, analogy and comparison there. The messenger in itself was a s- not quite sacred, but an honored person. So if you were wearing the hat of a messenger, it was not good to kill you or imprison you, you were usually granted passage because it was an honor, an honorable profession, so to speak. Here's a somewhat detailed question if you want to take a crack at this. So one of the famous rock art uh, depictions is that of the cocapelli, the so-called humpback flute player. I always thought the humpback was actually a backpack (laughs) is what I thought. I thought the flute wasn't really exactly musical. Maybe it was. I thought that was the message they were trying to depict—a messenger. I don't know. So, just as an aside, Angelo, what do you think the Coca Pelle image means?
0: Obviously, there are a lot of interpretations about it, um, but there are origins from you know Pueblo folks that uh, have uh, Coca Pelle arising uh, from their cultural backgrounds, um, but. We also, uh, you know, kind of have those considerations in, in Navajo culture as well. But I think what's really significant about Cocopelli is that, um, you know, it's, it's a fertility symbol, essentially. And so when you're looking at any of those spaces, what you're really kind of looking when you see if, uh, Cocopelli being represented is, is sort of like, you know, the bringing of rain, the growing of crops, um, the reproduction for life. That's what it's, you know, generally associated with. So, you know, it's kind of interesting, like, you know, some people will tote that particular symbol and not know what it means. And so I really encourage people to figure out what it means before they, you know, tattooing it on themselves or something like that. (laughs) You you have to know some of these things before you can really embrace them or like uh, have them in a particular capacity because, you know, it it doesn't really do folks that that much good um, to just have uh, admiration for something um, and not really know what it means, um, both generally in the world and to themselves. So I think that's really important for people who are visiting indigenous spaces because they really like certain things um, but you know certain things demand way more respect than we're giving it and uh you know obviously, I'm not at liberty to talk about a lot of um, things that are of a sacred nature um, that may not be given to us as knowledge publicly but there are things that we can do to educate ourselves and to make sure that we don't replicate unintentionally uh, stereotypical or or uh, harmful kind of narratives or
1: images. Um, so, note to listeners: beware of cultural misappropriation. <laughs> oh, nice, good PSA. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, the recreational background, of course, you mentioned running, which is vast wasn't his wasn't his name pepe do you recall the messenger went to the 19 oh, pueblos okay. yeah. pope that was it thank yeah. you thank you and then of course there's the canyon de chez uh race There's so there's it, it's it's still present which was kind of hard to get into but it's still present you know it, it's still everywhere a rich tradition and also you alluded to climbing something that i've noticed many times particularly on Cedar Mesa. You know, you go into places like Grand Gulch, any of its tributaries, you know, Bullet and Collins and so forth, and say, well, I don't see anything. I don't see anything. That's because you're not looking up. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> <laughs> and then you look up, it's like, whoa, wait a minute. How did they yeah. get there? And uh, that's, in, that's another one of these enduring mysteries. David Roberts, a person you might've heard of, he was a hardcore climber, that, that was his sport, was climbing. And then he started visiting the Southwest, and Cedar Mesa became his favorite place in the world. He shifted gears. And he wrote two books, one of them called In Search of the Old Ones, where he's teasing apart this climbing aspect many, many times. Because some of the modern archaeologists say arroyo cutting. In other words, it used to be at ground level, but due to a royal cutting, now it's 30 feet up a blank wall. But he's saying, I don't think so. <laughs> I think they were just really good climbers. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Um, I think there's been a misconception about um, indigenous uh, possibilities and accomplishments everywhere. Um, and even, you know, the... The early, I'm, I'm referring more to the Midwest and the, and the Northeast now, uh, the mound builders, right? They made these incredible civilizations and cities where they built these mounds. And the, these were like highly culturally significant. But to a lot of the non-Native folks who got there, all like, oh, these couldn't have been built by indigenous peoples. They, they're backward. They're ignorant. They don't know what they're doing or what they're saying. Like this obviously had to be part of some other civilization you know, and it's like, where did they go? That kind of whole thing the the whole mystery of like, you know, they just disappeared. Maybe it was aliens. Like, no, it's just, you know, we were that advanced and, and the significance is none of your business. So, you know, <laughs> it's like, just kind of breaking down those uh, misperceptions, those assumptions that we have, um, I think is hugely valuable in this time and and day, especially now when the conversations across the country are focused on um, race and discrimination, we're doing a lot of work everywhere to reevaluate what what are we doing in terms of diversity, equity, and inclusion. You know, it's like a lot of African-American voices are marginalized, a lot of indigenous peoples have been trying to get your attention at Standing Rock, at Bears Ears, at Mauna Kea, Like, we're all trying to tell you that this is a serious situation. Y'all should be paying attention and not just be, you know, running and climbing through these places, but participating and protecting them. You know, if you want them to be there, you have to help us to keep them there. So that's the next step, I believe. And not just conservation, but outdoor recreation as well, is that we have to align ourselves with indigenous communities to protect these places. That's just the next natural step.
1: Right. And going back to that from a few minutes ago, we're noting Bears Ears is indigenous-led. And I think the uh, Anglo people associated with it, people like Heidi, are very supportive of that. Uh, So it's very, very interesting, as you said. It's it's an experiment you're figuring out as you go. And I'm going to contrast it with some of our other famous parks, uh, Grand Canyon, Yellowstone, Yosemite, these are terrific places, and we tend to look upon them as literally parks in the sense of pure recreation, right? Grand Canyon, you know, it's legitimate, and it's, it's stupefying, right? It's just that big, that grand. Archaeologically, it's actually very weak, but nonetheless, it's oriented, as Yosemite is, around um, recreation. Let's go there and play. It's like a giant playground Pardon me for saying that, no disrespect to these places, but Bears Ears is pointedly not that. Definitely recreation, sure, that's fine, but it's demonstra- is trying to demonstrate another way to approach public Absolutely. land.
0: And I think that's uh, such a great point that you've put on it because I like to sort of have that mental imaginative exercise for folks who can't think outside of the box To say, like, imagine just having a museum, and the museum has all the stuff and Bears Ears in it. And essentially, this already exists. It's the edge of the cedars. Most of that stuff is stolen anyway. But if you look (laughs) what Bears Ears is, it's actually a giant outdoor space that can be the same as the museum. Only you're the visitor. You get to come, and then you get to leave. You know, it's like everything is right where it should be. The pot shards, the, uh, you know, the, the spaces where the ancestral village sites are at. Like, yeah, you can come and see them. Just don't touch them like you would in a museum. Just don't take them home like you would in a museum. Just don't, you know, sit on it or destroy it or do anything disrespectful to it. And then you get to leave. Like, those are right where they should be. You're the one that isn't, you know. So <laughs> you have to kind of go inside out and pull it apart and reverse your thinking about it. It's like, these don't belong in a museum. They belong right where they are. And you're, you're the one that has to visit with respect and then just let it be there. So it's a totally different experience, the way to reverse their, your paradigm on the way that you think about these things.
1: So true and so tricky now. So I'm going to ask you, is there still time to do this? For example, David Roberts, who I just mentioned, who I actually spent a little time with down in Bluff a couple of weeks ago, Bluff being just, of course, south of Blanding. And for people who don't know, Blanding is about, I think, 65 miles south of Moab, just to put People who aren't uh-huh. familiar with the area into context, and David called it the museum of the outdoors, just as you said. Now that museum we referred to outside of Blanding, it's a you know considered a good museum, but the whole museum thing is very yeah. problematic. So we used to not like the pot hunters. You know the Antiquities Act that was good. You you can't steal stuff out of these locations, and so if you had a uh, college degree, you could. <laughs> I'm not quite the same, but it's the, the border between taking a pot and putting it in your living room and taking a pot and putting it in your museum is somewhat gray. If you, if, 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 I, if I could be so bold as to suggest that the ideal way to do it is just leave it right there. As you said, it's a mu- living museum and to see it in context of its place is dramatically more educational and powerful than seeing it behind a glass display case. Actually, in a museum, it probably isn't there. It's probably in a basement yep. in a case. Yep. So, so is it possible to still do that, Angelo,
0: or is that too late? Well, I think the, the misconception here, and this is part of that whole topsoil idea, is the folks who got there originally, the non-Native folks who were coming over from the East, the Euro-American uh, colonizers uh, you know they were the first to steal these things um, essentially the indigenous folks who's it who are in the area and it, and it didn't belong to them they left it alone because it's not theirs and we have respect we have respect for the past we have respect for the dead these new visitors didn't have that and so they really did do a number on the landscape for what 150 plus years And so I I get tired of that argument where it's like, oh, all you're doing is dragging people to this national monument and it's just going to get worse. Like it was already bad. You guys already stripped it pretty good. And these things are not just in the museum. They're on the black market. They're in private galleries and collections like they're all over the place and we're doing our best to get them back home. Because again, these are our relatives. You would want to get your, your relative back home too, wouldn't you? So for us, like we we're thinking about not just trying to mitigate any damage in the moment now, but we're also trying to model it for other places around the country and even the world that you can do this and try to keep your landscapes intact, try to keep whatever cultural heritage that you have protected, And then demonstrate that there's a better way for you to develop those relationships. Rather than stealing indigenous stuff, you can outreach to indigenous communities, return their materials, and have a better relationship with them. Because you're absolutely right. You can have all of this material, but it doesn't do any good without the people. You don't know who made that. You don't know what clan it belongs to. You don't know what family it's affiliated with. You don't know the songs that are affiliated with that what kind of plant material, like all of this knowledge, a lot of us still have that. And that's why it's so important for us to be there at the table as indigenous peoples, not to uh, uh, be excluded, but be having a real say in how we're managing the land, managing the uh, material culture and the immaterial culture, the intangible stuff, right? Because you really want to know what these are called in the language, you really wanna know what the process is. And, and, and this is just all about us figuring out again, how to do things better. Cause we didn't have to do it the way that we did for the past 150 years or even the past 500 with the United States, we actually can do things better now. And we have that perspective with time and, and hindsight. So I'm really excited about the possibilities of, of all of this. But I think it requires people to get out of their comfort zones and think more dramatically different and creative to be innovative and outside of the box. Like, oh, yeah, we don't have to do museums anymore because this is a living cultural landscape, you know, And, and we as indigenous peoples, we still utilize that place. We use it for firewood. We use it for medicines. We go hunting. We have our ceremonies like it is literally still um a part of our lives and it's not just something where it's like you it off and protect it and you don't go there like no we we will always go there we have always gone there and no matter what you say in terms of designation we always will
1: (laughs) (laughs) just just to be clear on that (laughs) well i will contrast um the i mentioned yosemite and grand canyon uluru Formerly Ayers Rock in Australia. And I believe the Australia government to a certain degree returned it, if you will, to the Aborigine, and that is the technical term for the tribe, actually. Returned it to the Aboriginal tribes there for their well, I'm not I'm not sure if you could say managed, but at least their active participation, their active use, and they incorporated that cultural heritage into the visitation to that area. So rather than saying, okay, we're done, it's over, uh, or this is now all about recreation, they kind of did a nice combination. So that might be a good example for various uh, Yeah, there's a lot ears.
0: of um, examples that exist in terms of like uh, heritage or um, different ways that people are approaching these uh, kinds of hybrid um, both western and non western ways of of protecting these spaces or even managing them, and I think they 're really worth the look because uh like those two examples that you mentioned with the River New Zealand and with um Uluru I think are are very good examples, and I like the one uh about Australia because that is essentially like you know a giant rock it 's a giant mountain essentially. Uh, that a lot of folks have liked to climb. So I always am interested in those places because, you know, sacred mountains are very important to indigenous peoples. You think about Bears Ears, think about Mauna Kea, San Francisco Peaks in Arizona, um, even Ayers Rock, right? Uluru in, in Australia. And some folks, they don't make the connection that also Everest, Mount Everest is a, is a sacred mountain for a lot of folks. Uh, and I believe that there was a there was one year where it was particularly bad that a lot of climbers were dying um, getting to the top of Everest, and so that was when the, the Sherpa community was like, "Nope, we're done. Stop. We we're putting a pause on that." And everybody was super upset. All the climbers had spent all their training and time and money, and just like, "What? We're not we're not going to climb this?" I'm like, no. Like, don't you have respect for the mountain? Too many people have died, including our own. And, and I, I applaud that action. I think it was a marvelous move by that community because they're absolutely correct. You know, the mountain demands respect. It is a sacred place. And if there's too much death on it, there's no balance that can be restored. And you have to restore the balance. And I think that was a, a powerful statement they sent out. And I know they depend on that economy, too. But... Some things are just more important than money.
1: (laughs) We hope so. (laughs) Good examples. Uh, In uh, Nepal, uh, Everest, an odd name, Sir George Everest. The native people of Nepal called it Sagarmatha. And the Tibetans, which is the Sherpa, is actually Tibetan. People of the south called it Chomalungma, great mother goddess of the sky. And Machapachari above Polkret is never, I don't think, at least it's not on record, has never been climbed. It's off limits to climbing. And then Devil's Tower in Wyoming. There's a month of May climbing closure. I would like to note that uh, climbers very much respect these if they know about them. So the organized, if you will, climbing community, such as the Access Fund and so forth, they're very supportive of these closures. They actively promote them and try to educate. While some climbers can come in from out of state and do something else entirely. But I do want to be clear that the climbing community officially is very supportive of maintaining uh Yeah, I was on the uh, Access Fund webinar recently
0: about the petroglyph rock defacements uh, in and around the Moab area. And it wasn't just the sunshine wall or the birthing rock. You know, it's it's all over that area, including Bears Ears. Um, There are some panels there that have had some uh, bullet holes in them. You know, they've been shot at before. Um, And it's really indicative of a larger issue. It's not just about the damage to those. Uh, places, but it's essentially um, violence being done on our relatives as Indigenous peoples. So, you know, at what point does the conflation of a rock panel versus a human being, a person that's living and breathing before you, um, and you're able to do, do violence on one or the other, uh, wh- where's the line? Where's the boundary? So for us, it's, it's more about this kind of um, settler colonial ideal of like objectifying indigenous peoples being able to hurt or break or, you know, otherwise, um, make it so that this is, uh, insignificant for, uh, uh, of indigenous, uh, participation and presence. So it, it kind of, is really an act of violence. Um, and we're really, uh, upset that those are, have even been, um, issues of late, because I agree with you, by and large, the climbing community is respectful. Uh, by and large, they want to know more, they want to do better, and we should really take advantage of that and educate them and see if they can you know, actually put those uh, practices um, you know, with their climbing uh, in developing those relationships further and, and being good stewards.
1: Excellent, Angelo. I want to bring this to a, a finer point here, kind of affects me and I think most people listening. Visitation. This is interesting. This is a, a big topic. Sorry to, you know, kind of bring it up at the toward the end of our conversation. But again, I just spent a month in Moab, which is feeling the effects, dramatic effects of extraordinary level of visitation. And yet we can also note Every community needs an industry. Otherwise, it just kind of goes away, whether it's agriculture, whether it's tourism, whether it's coal mining, what, what is it? And so we can look at Moab and say, well, they kind of screwed it up with their lack of planning, lack of zoning, and lack of growth restrictions. But also, they do have an economy. So what does this mean in terms of the Bears Ears area, which is, of course, vast, and unlike our examples we've been using, pardon me, Grand Canyon, you can have an entrance station. It's easy. <laughs> I mean, you you go through this gate in order to get in. Bears Ears, no such thing is possible. You cannot charge admission. I don't think to enter an area where, of course, your people have lived for you know about two thousand years, and Anglo people have lived for about one hundred and fifty years, and then we can drive in at. 50 access points. So what broadly, Angela, do you think about visitation? How do we work with this? What does this mean? You're muted. Sorry about that. Uh,
0: Yeah, I think the uh, visitation part for um, Moab is really different because you're right. They sort of just open the floodgates and just let them come in. And I think that for San Juan County, um, they are very reticent to have anybody from the outside come into into their community and to to really change much of anything. Um, So maybe the flip side of that would be kind of like the bluff area where they're supportive of the monument and want to do some um, initiatives to stimulate the local economy. But I do... I think that the long-term solution is having sustainable green economies that are changing the direction of how the monies are flowing in to the communities. We can't be reliant on extraction anymore. We can't be reliant on the mining, drilling, um, all the stuff that's damaging to the land and finding ways to do things uh, better and differently. Again, we can't default into the old ways of thinking because that's how we got into this spot in the first place is that, we, you know, we're not ideally placed to handle a lot of the changes that are already upon us. Be it climate change, be it, you know, uh, trash and refuse or, you know, human waste management or even drought. You know, there are so many different issues that are at play here. But these problems can be turned into opportunities for solving and, and can be economic opportunities as well. Um, and I think that the larger landscape uh, of Bears Ears should be a teacher for everybody. It's about sustainability. You don't easily find a lot of water. You can't easily have like a large operation or have a large farming uh, setup. There's nothing there where you can have... Um, Ginormous amounts of influxes of people sustained for long, and so we have to we have to pay attention to that. that's part of the teaching that the land is giving you is like you can only do so much, so um, we have to understand our limits as human beings and know that there's a better way to do it, and it doesn't have to be destructive um, but we we also have to get out of our comfort zones again. We can't just think in those same terms of you know we we want this to just benefit this no it has to benefit everybody and that's that's the larger part of it right Is like taking care of our relatives so what's more important is it being able to uh you know um have like a short-term gain or or do you want this place to be um taken care of in perpetuity for future generations to come so
1: that's the larger question well this goes back to a theme i beginning to feel is developed during this conversation, which is we have this extraordinary heritage here and tradition that you exemplify and understand. And at the same time, ironically, I'm not sure about my proper adjective here. It's a new way of doing things. So there's kind of two things happening here. We have a new way of operating public lands a new way of learning and growing by combining some of the oldest traditions that we have so this is kind of a theme to this conversation i think it's the new experiment which incorporates Absolutely. the old and uh,
0: everybody has a part to play in it even you as runners the new messengers got to go out and you know become those good allies and supporters because the Indigenous communities, they're the ones that are at the forefront of all these land struggles, protecting the places we love to be in.
1: Well, again, people, go to the written show notes. There'll be links. Um, Angelo has provided a number a number of links here for more information. And I'm just going to go flat out say it. Donate, my suggestion, my editorial, donate to Dine Bikea. That uh, link will be on uh, the written show notes. And as we wrap it up here, Angelo, uh, part of our tradition for the fastest known podcast, we ask what's next. Often we're talking to a runner, what's their next FKT or race? But here it's kind of what's next? Like you said, we've had some dramatic change in the national uh, leadership. And we cannot end this conversation without mentioning Deb Halen, can we? I mean, the Secretary of the Interior. Is a registered member mm-hmm. of the Laguna Pueblo. I mean, compared with her, everyone's an immigrant, <laughs> right? And, and now she is literally in charge. You have a we have a Native American cabinet secretary for the first time ever. This is epic. This is incredible. So there's change afoot. Yeah, definitely. is that how you see um, it?
0: I think that's one of the most hopeful and optimistic parts of this journey. Right? Is like. The changes that have happened, nobody else could have foreseen either, like Deb Holland being in the position that she 's in, but we just hope that the administration will make some good decisions and make them soon, because you know these places are finite and they do have uh, a limit, um, but we 're really just super excited and really enthused about the possibilities um, and I think you know her being part of uh, Laguna Pueblo. And having that relationship with the other folks that um, also see this as a, as a sacred landscape um, is super important to us. Because all the, 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 the tribes, not just the Navajo Ute, uh, U Mountain Ute, um, Zuni and Hopi, the five tribe coalition, um, there are other Pueblos and other tribes that have connections to Bears Ears. And a lot of those folks in New Mexico do have that. Uh, connection they have the stories that come through these landscapes and so that's really important for us because it's a lot of the uh, internal personal materials that the relationship and connection you can't teach they just have that and they develop it on their own and so they already know how important it is and we know that she carries that wherever she goes so we just hope that it's a good connection um, that will translate into something uh, marvelous for the future so i think that's really important like we are indigenous peoples who have suffered a very hard um several hundred years um and it's hard to think about the future because a lot of us are just worried about right now so when you think about deb holland and what she represents Mm -hmm. that future is like you know leadership it's women it's like revitalization of like Uh, stewardship of our places, you think about Bears Ears, it's the future of addressing historical trauma, it's the future of sustainability, it's the future of healing and peace and relationship development. Like these are great concepts for us to like focus on for the future because so many of us might be stuck on what happened in the past or we might be stuck right now just trying to feed our families, trying to figure out how to stay alive in COVID times, how to be protective of the places that we have and the traditions and language we do have so thinking about the future is super important as runners we know this there's a there's a beginning there's a middle and an end to our races but some of these races they don't have an end right we just got to say that's it for today we'll continue this run
1: tomorrow Angelo, I have nothing more to add. You're you're extraordinarily articulate, your wisdom is deep, and your perspective is broad. I thank you very much for taking the time. I'm going to encourage the listeners once again to go to our show notes and click on the DNA Bacchia website and the other links you have provided for more information. And I hope I see you in person. I'll be fantastic.
0: Sometime. Um, I will be there, I think uh, this summer. I know we have the totem pole coming through in july and you know there's so many opportunities for for me to just to meet folks and 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 talk to them about uh how important this landscape is so really great to be here thanks for the invite buzz great great discussion